Welcome to today's edition of Front Porch Talks. I'm Grayson Willis. Today's edition of Front Porch Talks took place on Ocracoke Island, North Carolina, April 10th through the 13th at our 25th anniversary men's retreat from Harrisonburg First Church of the Nazarene. And this year's theme was Lead On. And in session one, Dr. Brian Charette came and shared on the call to lead. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Samuel 14 as our primary text, but it's going to take me a bit to get there. 1 Samuel 14, 1. This retreat is the call to lead. And let me get right to the bottom line. This is about the Lord's call on every single man in this room to be a leader. No exceptions. Every single man to be a leader. And that's what we're going to be talking about. This is Pastor Adrian sort of introducing the concept. This year, our focus is on leadership. Based on a very simple idea, God is calling men in 2019 to lead, not to sit on the sidelines hoping others will lead, not hiding behind our fears or personality <coughs> thinking leadership is for someone else, but to really lead, to serve together in his power, no matter where we are. That's the call. It's appropriate that it be the 25th anniversary men's retreat and that be the focus. It's appropriate that it be now, 2019. If you haven't noticed... There's a lack of leadership, and there's a lack of male leadership, and the enemy seems to be carrying out a plan to attack leadership in men at its roots in our culture, in our church, and so this is, this is a really timely focus for the 25th anniversary. Leadership has been a focus of mine professionally for a long, long time. Um, this is an area of passion for me because I think it's... I think it's how I'm going to end up affecting my world. And so, and I say me, I, I, I think it's true for all of us, but leadership means something to me. I think leadership is the way that I will have an impact. And so I've been spending a long time studying it. Um, professionally, and I teach at James Madison University back in Harrisonburg, and this, that's what I teach. I teach leadership because that's what I care most about. Uh, and so this morning, I, I want to do three things. Most importantly, I want to unpack some biblical text on this notion of leadership, the call to lead, with a little bit of a focus on when we say no, when we don't lead, when we turn leadership down, when we, when we stay on the sidelines or think leadership is for someone else. Uh, so I want to start with that. And then I've got two things. I just want to share two things I've learned in learning about leadership um, that have impacted me most, I think they've impacted me because I need to hear them. And because I think they run under the radar. I don't think they're things you often hear or read about leadership. Um, so that's where we're going uh, this morning. Biblical foundation and two things, two ideas of leadership that I think are important, I think especially for men, especially for men of God uh, today. I'm going to start with the first, the first one is... One of the most important things I learned, I started uh, studying leadership in 1996, formally. Uh, I think publishing doesn't mean anything, but I think that was my first publication date. But I read what I can, I study what I can, I analyze what I can. And um, something really critical I learned specifically, in fact, when I was uh, doing my doctoral dissertation, I did it on leadership, because that's my passion. And one of the most surprising and most important lessons I learned can be illustrated in this video that I'll play you. Watch the video and see if you can tell how this car trick is performed. 
Hi, I'm Richard, this is Sarah, and we're going to perform the amazing colour-changing card trick with this blue-backed deck of cards. Now the idea is very simple. I'm just going to spread the cards in front of Sarah and ask her to push any card towards the camera. Right, okay, let's see. I'm going to go for this card here. Okay. Now Sarah could have selected any card at all from the deck. But she selected the card, which is now face down on the table. All I'm going to ask her to do is show us which card she selected. Right, so the card that I chose was in fact the Three of Diamonds. The Three of Diamonds, okay, excellent choice. That card goes back into the deck. Now I'm just going to spread the cards face up on the table. Do a little click of the fingers. And you'll see that Sarah's card here has now got a blue back. Not particularly surprising. What's slightly more surprising is all of the other cards have got red backs. And that is the amazing colour-changing card trick. ago, a, a book called The Invisible Gorilla, where two uh, professors studied how the brain blocks the receipt of information. How the brain spends more time blocking information than it does receiving information. Now, most people who see the color changing cartridge for the first time don't see all the changes. Lots of people don't see any changes. There are, in fact, more than half of the people who see it see zero changes. And very few see all four. Now, not to brag, anybody see all four? Or that hasn't seen it before? See all four? So there you go. And why? Well, it's because of the instructions you give your brain. It is a, a fundamental aspect of learning that's really important and I think supports Romans 12, 1 even more. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I think what that means is reset the filters in your mind so that they focus on God and not on everything else. So what we do is we have this conception of leadership and if we don't match up with that conception then we disqualify ourselves as leaders. We program our brain. Very few people, very few people are willing to say, men are willing to say, I am a leader. That's a really hard sentence for people to say. I've done focus groups with it because they think being a leader is someone they're not. Because they think a leader is not them, not an introvert. A leader is, you know, on top of the mountain, charging, barking out orders. And they don't think they are. And the reason I'm making a big deal out of this is that's very dangerous thinking for a man of God. The truth is, you won't learn what you can't see. And you can't see what you're not paying attention to. It's just how your brain was made. And so if you don't transfer the idea of, I am a leader, and accept that, accept it as God's call in your life, you'll turn it down. I did for several years, and I'll, I'll tell you about that. I didn't even know leadership was a thing until I went to the Marine Corps. I never heard leader, character, any of that stuff until I was on Paris Island. I got, a, uh, I got a Dear John letter when I was on Paris Island. And since some of you were born after 1945, I will tell you that a Dear John letter is when 
A girl writes a letter to the soldier overseas. That wasn't overseas unless you count South Carolina as so culturally different. Uh, sorry. Uh, I, so I got a Dear John letter, and I'm sitting at the end of my rack. I'm in this huge squad bay of 80 racks, double-decker beds. Um, and I get this Dear John letter, and, you know, she says, I just want to be friends. You know the stuff. Just want to be And so it's in the evening, and... I'm trying to hold it together, because there are a lot of things you can do on Paris Island. One of them is not cry. <laughs> and I was at the end of the squad bay, nearest the drill instructor. And the senior drill instructor was on duty that night. And he was this stereotypical Robert Zink. Um, talked to him. Wow. Talked to him after I got out of the Marine Corps. And I told him this story. And he remembered it. Anyway. So he's on duty, stereotypical Marine, 6'1", chiseled, red crew cut. And I'm sitting on my footlocker with this dear John letter. And my heart ripped apart. And he calls me into his office. And, you know, I don't, I'm not in the mood to do benzen thrusts tonight. Just leave me alone. So, but that's not an option in boot camp. It's not, I'd prefer to talk to you later. That's not an option. So I get up off my footlocker. I run to his door as you're supposed to. I pound on it. As I serve the reporting to the senior drill instructor in order to serve, I'm standing in attention. He says, get in here. So I walk in, I'm standing at attention in front of his desk, and I realize I still have this letter in my hand. And I don't know what he wants. He doesn't say anything after that. He gets up from behind his desk, he walks past me, he puts his hand on my shoulder, he walks out and closes the door. And it, it took me a minute to figure out what was happening. And I realized that he was giving me the only 10 minutes of privacy that I was going to get in 10 weeks of boot camp on Arizona. And so I had this letter in my hand and I just started sobbing. You know that feeling? You can't control it. She has broken up with you. Now I know what you're saying. How would any woman look at this? And not I know, I asked the same question. But you can't, you can't do anything. You can't call her. You get one phone call at the end of the You can't call her. I'm not rushing back from, I'm not going AWOL. I'm not going to commit a federal crime. So you're stuck, trapped with a broken heart. And so I just sobbed. I don't know for how long, I just sobbed. And he must have stood outside my office, his office, and waited. Well, it was my office then. Um, because when I had settled down, he walked back in, put his hand on my shoulder, sat down at his desk, and I went back to my footlocker. And I thought, what just happened here? I didn't know exactly what happened, but it was the beginning of something. I mean, it was a long time ago, and I remember it like it yesterday. It was a long time ago, because I'm in my early 40s now, so that's terribly quotient. It was a long time ago, and I remember it vividly. It impacted my life. It impacted my life. And I was, frankly, I was a better Marine after that. I would have done anything for the guy. I would have done anything for Staff Sergeant Singh. Because in that moment, he cared about me. And it didn't say, look, it says nothing like that in the NCO manual. Do that. He did it because he was a leader. And it was my first introduction to what leadership could do. A few months after that, I was at Camp Pendleton, an infantry training school, and 
It was the coldest night of my life in California. And I say that because I'm from Massachusetts. You'd think I could beat California. It was the coldest night of my life. And there were 20 of us, a squad, doing these maneuvers on the mountains. For, yeah, it seemed like a total waste of time. But um, it was different because a Marine, a trainee, had been killed in that training activity about two or three weeks before. So everybody was kind of on edge. And I remember we were going to, it was one of those, you know, toughen you up things. So we didn't have any coats, we just had our candies, that's all, and boots. And so it was, you know, be tough. And so they put us in a line in a dry riverbed. And I don't know what the temperature got down to, but it was the coldest night of my life. And there was a young lieutenant who was in charge of us, and he was really young. Um, and I was from Boston College. And he was responsible for us. And so... We all laid down in this riverbed, and we were supposed, that was where we were supposed to spend the night. And that lieutenant walked a post around us all night long. He didn't have coats, gloves, anything, anyway, either. And I just remember hearing his boots pass my head every few minutes. And how comforted that was. It was really strange because nobody was sleeping. It was 11 degrees. You know, we didn't know if they were going to shoot some fake bombs. You know, you're in marine training. They play games. So, you know, nobody's restfully sleeping in this riverbed. And so we're, I'm laying there and I just, I begin to count on those boot steps passing by my head every minute. However, it took him to circle 20 men. And I remember the comfort there was in that. And I remember thinking, this is a thing. This is something. I didn't know what it was at that point. I didn't, couldn't talk about servant leadership, didn't know who Robert Greenleaf was or any of that stuff. But this is a thing. And that's when really, I think I first understood or started to understand, not leadership. I'm never going to understand leadership fully. But I know God has called me to be a leader. I know God has called you to be a leader. That's what this weekend is about. So just by way of some structure. John Maxwell, many of you know, and I think we have some books we're going to give. Leadership is not about titles, positions, or flowcharts. It's about one life influencing another. A leader is one who knows the way, goes the way, and shows the way. And then this week, this is the definition we're going to look at. We're going to work with on leadership. Leadership is about influence. It's about relationships. It's about serving. It isn't about heroics. I mean, biblically, this is a pretty easy argument to make. It's, I don't know that you can find a biblical success story that isn't about someone being called to lead. I wrote some down. Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, Gideon, David, Solomon, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, John the Baptist, Peter the Apostles, Paul, Jesus. We read through all of our Bibles... And we see lots of pictures, some good leadership, some terrible leadership. And in 1 Samuel 14, I like this story because it shows us both at the same time. 1 Samuel 14, you can go there, verse 1. It's about 1,000 B.C., and Israel's first king is King Saul. Uh, sad man. And Israel is at war, as they were for many years, with the Philistines, and they're in battle. Now, I'm 
If you read 1 Samuel 14 uh, and 15, uh, you'll get a pretty good picture of King Saul and what might have led to his downfall and his relationship with Jonathan. But in the interest of time, I'm just going to zoom in on the story of Jonathan and his armor bearer uh, during this battle with the Philistines. 1 Samuel 14.1 One day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Now that's really telling. In order to advance, in order to fight, Jonathan has to sneak out of camp. He has to do it behind his father's back. That teaches us a lot about his father. In fact, you know, you've probably been, even if you're young, you've probably been in a position where you had to lead, not in support of the leadership you were being offered, not because of the leadership you were being offered, but because in spite of the leadership you were being offered. So Jonathan has to sneak out of camp to advance. Verse 2, Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men. So we get careful details. Careful details. Details in the Bible matter. Samuel is telling us the story. Jonathan is leading and Saul is safe under a pomegranate tree. Jonathan leaves with this mighty raiding party of two. This insurmountable, unpenetrable, immutable force of two. And Saul is under a tree with 600 men on the sidelines. That's the setup of the story. And we're going to learn there's a big difference between being on the sidelines and being in the game. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other Senna. Those words mean treacherous and slippery. We're getting a picture. One cliff stood to the north toward Michmash, the other to the south toward Giba. We get this picture of an impossible military situation where the enemy has high ground and observation and Jonathan and his armor bearer are exposed on all sides no matter how they advance. This is how the story starts. And not to mention, they're outnumbered. Then Jonathan says something in verse 6 that I think about a lot. Because I think it is reflective of the true heart of a leader. I remember looking at Roger. I remember several men's retreats ago. I can't tell you which one. Several, Roger and I were walking. And he challenged me to study Jonathan. I don't know why. I think he thought I was immature and needed growing up. I don't think he liked me either. There's a whole combination of things going on. And I did. And Jonathan became one of my favorite Old Testament characters. One of the most underappreciated, understudied Old Testament men. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Take note, that's the second time Samuel reminds us that his armor bearer was young. Second time, just in case you forget, young armor bearer. Here he says, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. It's like Jonathan turns to his armor bearer and says, look, I realize this is an impossible situation, and we may be on the verge of being gutted. But maybe God will do something. Maybe if we take steps, the Lord will intervene. Let's go for it. 
What a wonderful spirit of leadership. Give it a go, you never know. I think the Lord appreciates that. I, uh, I'm careful with all blanket statements, but I think the Lord likes that better than caution. That's one thing I wouldn't say on Sunday, they would say at the minute. I think the Lord likes that spirit better than caution. I was once a pastor. Quotes. Quotes. I was on staff at a church back in Harrisonburg. And some of you know the story, but some of you don't. And it's very relevant to this. I was not a great pastor. Um, you do not want me in your hospital room. I bet there are some trained chimps that are better at hospital visitation <laughs> than I was. Just like the ones that can do sign language. I just could not. Counseling. Can you imagine being in counseling with me? I can't, and I'm me. So I wasn't a great pastor. And I was always very sensitive to the fact that, Lord, did I miss you in this? Did I just become a pastor because I wanted to be one? Because you know it's a life of glamour and glitz. So men, men, <laughs> sorry, that's just a joke between Drew and me. None of your business. Um, did I just want to be a pastor and miss you? And then something happened that was a turning point in my life. The senior pastor of the church retired. He started his own business and left the church. And he appointed the associate in his place. And he came to me and he said, I would like you to be the associate's right-hand man. I would like you to be to the associate what the associate was to me. And I couldn't do it. You know, normally, I, would, I just don't remember, I'm really loyal, and I'm like a puppy dog, and I said, okay. But I couldn't. I couldn't get a sense of call. I couldn't get Pam to say that this was what the Lord was calling me to do. And so I was in a position of saying, I, I can't be the person's right-hand man. I, I'm not sure he's called to be the senior pastor. I'm sure I'm not called to be his right-hand man. Let me, let me just support him. And they said, no, we want you to talk about how you feel at this leadership meeting. It's about 30 people. I said, you want me to get up in front and tell people that I don't feel like I can support this new senior pastor? What, what would you do? And, well, I'll tell you what I did. I, I started by trying to, to sort of be nice. You know, I just don't feel it's a fit. Uh, I don't feel, you know, all the fake things you would say to avoid telling the hard, honest truth to a group of 30 adults. But then they started asking questions. And I had to be honest. And I kind of had a feeling that that was the end of my ministry and the end of my time at that church, and it was. And my attitude was, okay, Lord, I had my shot. I blew it. I understand that that is over. And so I, I ended up leaving the church um, and relegated that part of my life. I certainly, in 1998, I certainly didn't think I would ever do this again. I said, I don't want to do it, and I don't think you want me to do it. I think you want me on the sidelines because of this carnage that I've left in my wake. So I had the best of both worlds. I was kowtowing to fear, but also had a good objective reason to defend it. It was perfect. And it worked fine until Kerry Willis, who makes a mess of things wherever he is. 
We ended up at Harrisonburg First Church of the Nazarene, and I was doing my best to be really quiet and really on the sidelines and saying no to anything and being afraid of what happened before. I don't want to go through that again. I don't want to do that to people. I don't want to be made to stand up. Like Part of it was, you know, honestly, part of it was, no, Lord, you put me through that. You can have minister. Part of it was that. Now, I wouldn't have said that until recently, because I know he won't kill me because he understands I've already repented, but... That was part of the attitude, to be honest. But part of it was, honestly, part of it was, I really did some damage. I mean, I hurt some people. When I stood up in front of that group, I hurt some people. And I wasn't interested in going through that again. And so we're going to Harrisonburg First Church of the Nazarene. And I don't, I don't know why, but Pastor Perry knew who I was. And we're, we'd been going to the church for a while. And the purpose-driven life came out. The book, Purpose Driven Life. Well, some of you don't. Isn't that weird? There's some people in the room who are so young. Purpose Driven Life. You know, what is that? Purpose Driven Life came out, and Pastor Kerry wanted to, to offer a Sunday school class on the Purpose Driven Life. And he wasn't that crazy about everything about the book, but he wanted to offer it because he thought there was some value. And he asked me to teach him. And I don't know why he asked me. He does. He's sitting right there, but I don't want him to get up and start preaching. Um, but, and I don't know why I said yes. And a voice inside my head said, okay, all right, watch. Try it. And so I said yes. And so we set up this Sunday school class. And, you know, I, I was setting my mind to be excited about six people. You know how you are with that. And it was in this side room at back home at church and I remember people were coming and people were sitting out in the hall we had to set chairs up in the hall and I was so overcome with emotion that I had to turn around and pretend to be playing with the VCR so I could collect if some of you were in that class you remember why is he spending so much time working on the VCR. There are only a couple of buttons you could be concerned about. I just was overwhelmed. And so the Lord's answer to my griping and complaining and fear and commitment to the sidelines was, just watch me. That Sunday school class was packed. And I don't think it had anything to do with a particular gift I brought to the table or a fantastic teaching. I think it was just the Lord. I think it was a leader. I think it was a leader interceding in a moment, taking a chance on somebody, and it was the Lord saying, watch. And that was the beginning of my getting off the sidelines. Changed my life. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead. I'm with you heart and soul. Leaders have that effect on people. Jonathan said, come on then, we'll cross over toward them and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we'll stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we'll climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them, both of them, two, both of them showed themselves to the Philistine prophet. Look, said the Philistines. The Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan, his armor bearer, Come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. 
So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me. <laughs> climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. Then panic struck the whole army, those in the camp and field and those in the outposts and raiding parties, and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. Verse 20. Then Saul and all his men assembled and went to the battle. Now he takes action. They found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. So on that day, the Lord saved Israel. And the battle moved on beyond Beth Aden. Don't ever confuse this. You are not being called to lead because the Lord needs you. You're being called to lead because the Lord wants to exact his destiny through you and around you. Come on. Whatever happens, it's him working through you. The challenge is when we sit on the sidelines. In fact, Saul's end was very soon after that. In fact, the last verse in the next chapter, 1 Samuel 15, says, And the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. So I'll repeat Roger's advice. Study Jonathan sometime. I, I think the reason that Jonathan was King David's best friend was because Jonathan consistently had one response to the Lord. Yes. Consistently. Study him. Look it up. Challenge me. Jonathan had one response to the Lord. Yes. And so I guess the question that's hanging over our head for this retreat is, what's your response to the call to lead? What are you saying now? I think it's helpful to look at what Moses said. So turn, if you would, back to Exodus chapter 4. Now, you know the famous story. Moses has given his orders through the Lord in a burning bush. Well, not a burning bush, it's landscaping. A burning bush that was not being consumed as it was burning. And the Lord charges him, so now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So the Lord is calling Moses. So now in Exodus 4, 1, Moses answered, what if they don't believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. And Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake. And he ran from it. And then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside the cloak. So Moses put his hand into the cloak, and when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Now put it back in your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into the cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. And then the Lord said, if they don't believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they don't believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Verse 10. So Moses was firmly convinced, 
first from a burning bush, and then through three miraculous signs right before his eyes. How could Moses not have accepted his call to lead in the face of such shows of power? So Moses said, I am yours, Lord. I will lead. Only an imbecile would turn you down and remain passive on the sidelines. In case you weren't following along, that's a different translation. <laughs> Verse 10, Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go! I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. What's that saying? The Lord doesn't call the equipped. He equips the call. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. Let's think about the objections that we choose. You know, one of the implications of this theme is all of us are called to lead. Well, implied in that is that some don't hear the call or don't obey the call or present objections. Mine was, I told you what mine was, I had objections based on past failure and fear and frankly anger. And I wasn't going through it again. I don't know what yours are, if you have one. Now in this story, Moses does catch a break. The Lord doesn't turn him into a buzzard. He gives him Aaron and makes it that way. But it still says... The Lord's anger burned against Moses. You know what's interesting? You know who wrote that? You know who's telling us this story? Moses. Moses is telling us this story. It's like, hey, not this. You don't do this. It was like in Highlights magazine, Goofus and Gallant. Remember Goofus and Gallant? Goofus, bad boy. Didn't help old ladies across the street. Gallant unfurled a carpet for the old ladies to go across the street. It's like Moses saying, don't do this. So, what about you? Let's handle some of them. Uh, what about if you're an introvert? You're shy, introverted. I give you Gideon. You're not the leadership type. I hear that a lot. When I do focus groups on leaders, I, I study why they don't. I hear that a lot. I'm just not the leader type. Okay? If you're not the leadership type, I give you Jacob. You don't speak well in front of audiences, I give you Moses. You're young and inexperienced, I give you Timothy. You think that's what pastors are for, I give you Noah. You think people won't follow you, I give you Paul. Or maybe you think leadership is too much vulnerability, too much sacrifice, too much blood, I give you Jesus. I guess this week for us is a call to step up, to trust, to trust the Lord. To take the step to believe in, to own being a leader, to be able to say with humility and humbleness and understanding of your total dependence on God, to be able to say, I am a leader. I'm called to lead and I will. I like that little verse in, in Daniel. For those who are strong in the Lord will do exploits. Some of you have seen this clip before. I'm going to show it again because I think it's a wonderful analogy of what Jesus exhorted us through this life is like and his call for us to lead. What's up, coach? How strong is Wesley with you? Well, strong we are. You already written Friday Night Down as a lost brother? Well, not for that we could beat him. 
Come here, Brock. You too, Jared. What am I in trouble now? Not yet. I want to see you do the death crawl again, except I want to see your absolute best. <laughs> what? You want me to go to the 30? I think you go to the 50. The 50? I can go to the 50 if nobody's on my back. I think you can do it with Jeremy on your back. But even if you can, I want you to promise me you're going to do your best. Alright. Your best. Okay. You gonna give me your best? I'm gonna give you my best. Alright, one more thing. I want you to do a blindfold. What? Because I want you to give it up at a certain point when you can go further. Get down. Jeremy, get on his back. <laughs> I get a good tight hold, Jeremy. Alright, let's go, Brock. Keep your knees off the ground. Just your hands and feet. There you go. Go to the left. Don't quit! Don't quit! 
It takes something more than that. Uh, the leader has a bold vision and commands the troops from the hillside and barks out orders and makes speeches and is an extrovert. I don't think that's what leadership is at all, because that's not what relationships are about. That's not what influence is about. I don't think my leadership is truly defined by this. This is easy. Anybody can do this. I think my leadership is defined by the next moment when I come home and Pam has tears in her eyes. I think my leadership is defined by the next moment I choose encouraging words for my daughters. I think it's defined in the split second, the moment, the split second, the next time I'm faced with temptation. My leadership is defined by what happens in that moment, whether I succumb to it or overcome. My leadership is defined by what I say to the next person I meet who can't do a thing for me. My leadership is defined by how openly and willingly I will talk about Jesus. It's not this big, broad thing. It's moment by moment. Your leadership is defined probably this afternoon. Leadership is built on moments. One moment to the next. Taking one moment to the next. You can do big bold, and that's fine. And you can speak from pulpits, and that's fine. But that's not where leaders are made. I want to close with what I think is a good story. It's a young man named Jonathan Montanias. I'm going to show you a clip. You won't see him until the end of the clip. But he does something in a split second, in a moment, just in a moment. He makes a decision that, in my eyes, makes him a leader. So watch for Jonathan. And I know you guys get tired of me. It's little things. Coach Peter Morales of the Coronado High School Thunderbirds in El Paso, Texas, makes no qualms about it. He has a favorite on this team. Mitchell, I need you. I need you to help me out with my coaching tips, Mitchell. Team manager Mitchell Marcus has a developmental disability. One, two, three, five. He far surpasses everyone here when it comes to love of the game. He's just an amazing person that our basketball team loves being around. Mitchell's mom, Amy, says he's always been that way. Mitchell always had a basketball. That was always what he wanted for his birthday. And because basketball is that important to him, on the last game of the regular season, the coach told Mitchell to suit up. What was it like to put on the uniform? I was very happy. I bet you were. Just wearing a jersey was enough for Mitchell. But what he didn't know, what no one knew at the time, was that the coach planned to play him. At the end, no matter what the score, you were prepared to lose that game. For his moment, yes. For his moment in time, yes. And so, with a minute and a half left, Coronado leading, but only by 10, Coach Morales put in his manager. And just started hearing Mitchell, Mitchell. But here's where the fairy tale fell apart. Although his teammates did everything they could to get Mitchell a basket, each time they passed him the ball, he either missed the shot, or, like on their last possession, booted it out of bounds, turning the ball over to the other team with just seconds left. He wasn't going to be able to score, but I was hoping that he was happy that he was just put in the game. Could you have ever imagined what happened next? I did. I could not. Not at all. What happened next happened on the inbound. The guy with the ball there is a senior at Franklin High School, number 22, Jonathan Montanez. Uh, I, just, I was raised to treat others how you want to be treated. Just thought Mitchell deserved his chance, deserved his opportunity. 
I think I'll pray about it for the rest of my life. What Jonathan did was yell out Mitchell's name, then threw the ball right to him. Right there. One of the most memorable turnovers of all time. It wasn't the game-winning shot. When the buzzer sounded, Coronado had 15 more points than Franklin. But Jonathan's assist and Mitchell's basket did change the outcome decidedly. I wanted to know more about Jonathan, so I started with clearly from the young man of God. When the chancellor of Texas Tech, interestingly enough, saw that, he said, literally, that's the kind of leader we want at Texas Tech. It gave Jonathan Montanez a scholarship. He graduated uh, last semester, I think. He's been leading. He was in a, uh, in a program called the United Future Leaders. Sent him fan mail. He's just got a servant's heart. I, I want to pay attention. Uh, to, uh, I'll read it to you. The very last line. I feel like people have looked up to me and things like that, he allowed. But I just keep it humble and try not to stick out my chest. My parents raised me to want to be a great man. We've... Um, put together a covenant to help commemorate the 25th anniversary of the mentor training. You have it uh, on your sheet, maybe somewhere else as well. The idea of it is, it is the commitment a godly man makes in 2019 to lead. And we're going to read it together. Uh, we're gonna, in a moment, I'm going to have you stand and we're going to read it together as a commitment, as a covenant. And we also plan to repeat it uh, tonight and tomorrow night. But I don't want you to read it out of rote. I don't want you to read it because everyone else is reading it. I want you to read it because you can say, by the grace of God and in his name, you can agree to those commitments. So before I have you stand and we'll read it together, I'd like you to look at it to make sure that, yes, you do agree. With it. So I'll give you a minute or two to just read through it. And then we'll close by reading it together. Okay, if you would, please stand. I'll lead us, but we'll read it together if you mean it. Um, I'll start with, I offer, we won't read the numbers when we come to it, we'll just read the statement. I offer this covenant as a commitment and a prayer. By it, I'll live, and in it, I will depend on the grace of God, activated in me, and strengthening me. I know that apart from him, I am empty, but in him I can live and live victoriously. I can do nothing on my own strength, all things through his. I believe in God, the Father all-powerful. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's Son, my Lord. I affirm that Christ is the only way of my salvation. I know that he is my model for living. It is by faith I am saved. I will obey him, living in his legacy. I understand that the Holy Spirit works in me, convicting of sin, sanctifying. I therefore commit to the life of holiness by his power and provision, soberly acknowledging that the result of the life Confidence on the promises of God, no 
like circumstances. I will be a man of his word, knowing that the Bible has everything I need for life. I will be a man of consistent prayer. As a son, I will be loyal and strong. If I am married, I will love my wife the way Christ loves his church, always treating her as precious. She and I are one, and I will live accordingly when we are together and when we are apart. If I am a father, my children and grandchildren will see through me a glimpse of the love and mind of Christ. I will be a good friend, faithful and true. I will give generously. I will tell others about Christ and the freedom to be found in Him, showing others the way. I will strengthen my local church. I won't be afraid, knowing full well that He is always with me. I will accept and live my call to lead. I will love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love others as I love myself. I will live my days to please my Lord, the author and finisher of my faith. In his name, amen. Thank you, Brian, for a good word this morning, challenging word. I couldn't help but think about people around me that I'm being called to lead and how my obedience may impact their life. And as he asked that question, and so... Um, can we just stop? Can we pray for a minute um, before we go? We'll be on our way in a minute and have the day to ourselves. But ultimately, the question uh, that's asked today is a question that only you can answer for yourself. How will you answer the call of God to lead? So, Lord, I pray that we would not just be hearers of the word. Yes. We would be doers of the word. Yes, moment by moment, Lord. I pray for the youngest one in the room today, up to the oldest one in the room. Lord, there's never a season in our life where we're not called to lead. Yes. And so help us today, not just to see ourselves, not just to see maybe our excuses, maybe our failures, maybe guilt and shame would creep in. Lord, we would ask in the name of Jesus that you would help us see beyond that. Lord, I pray today that we would see the lives that hang in the balance of our obedience. Maybe it's family. Maybe it's those around us that don't know you. Maybe we don't know who they are yet, but someone stands on the other side of our obedience. And maybe that would be enough, Lord, to compel us to answer your call. We're trusting you to speak and you to lead and for you to show us what it means to be the men of God you've called us to be. In your name, amen. amen.